morning. Well, it's great to be here. Um, first of all, I want to say um, how much I love this place. Um, you know, this is the only church I come to where you take a, a considerable amount of time to, to press in on the scriptures, to, to dwell on them, to think on them, to ponder them. And it's such a beautiful thing. Um, and I love that. I love that about this place. And I, I wanted to say also um, thank you um, because I don't look lightly on your support of me through seminary. Um, I, I don't look lightly. And in fact, I wouldn't have been able to graduate when I did uh, without your help. Um, so I, I thank you guys so much. And I hope that at some point this could be a way of saying thank you. Um, providentially, Paul has been taking us through Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, he's been taking us through pictures, motifs, instincts where we see Christ. And uh, what I wanted to teach on uh, kind of fit right into that stream. And so that's uh, what we're going to talk about today. Um, sometimes uh, when we look at culture, um, we have questions that we ask. What would be best for our culture? What would be the best thing? Uh, some people have different things when they start talking about that, whether it is uh, uh, religion, whether, whether religion is a good thing for the culture. Uh, other things would be uh, an economic uh, kind of way of looking at life, uh, whether it's uh, a more capitalistic or a socialistic. Um, and then we get into things like, uh, I think uh, being democratic or being republican is a better thing for the culture. And then when we get out of the kind of the outer rim and we get into the inner rim, the things that matter most to us, we say, Starbucks is better for the culture. No, no, no. Port City Java is better for the culture. You have heard it say, go heels, but I say to you, go dookies. And sorry for the Wolfpack fans in there. But... But no one, no one questions peace. No one questions if peace is the best thing for our culture. Even terrorists who fly planes into large buildings, who believe the best thing is to plunder the world through war, they don't believe that they're being whisked off to famine. They believe that they are being whisked off to paradise. We all long for peace. But frankly, we find ourselves, if we're honest, caught between two worlds. And I would say the world, world of Tolstoy and the world of Lewis. Tolstoy, in his 19th century novel, world, War and Peace, uh, says this. He had the unlikely capacity many men have of seeing and believing in the possibility of goodness and truth, but of seeing the evil and falsehood of life too clearly to take any serious part in it. He's saying this, look around, look around. Your idea of peace is a pipe dream. Your idea of peace, this idealistic worldview is being shattered on the rocks of reality. Look around. Get real. 
And in that moment, we hear Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That, that feeling inside of us that something is more to life than this that desire that we're made for something better. Now the question is, what is peace? And the Hebrew word that we're going to study is shalom. Can you say shalom? Shalom. When we begin to talk about what is peace, we have many definitions of what that is. First, we might think of uh, the end of war. So a ceasefire. Second, we might think of Maybe the Nobel Peace Prize. But even in a smaller capacity, when the husband comes home, when the wife comes home, when they've been with the kids all day, they said, here you go. I need some peace and quiet. I think that uh, a famous professor, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, has a great definition of shalom, of peace. He says this, we call it peace but it means far more than mere peace or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight in the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice. Fulfillment and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Here's what he's saying. Shalom is incorporating our physical, it's incorporating our psychological, and it's incorporating our spiritual. Um, as someone who is getting older, things just hurt more in the morning than they used to. Is anyone else there? Like, you use a muscle that you haven't used in five years, and the next morning you're absolutely debilitated. That one day, there will be shalom for that. Uh, for those of us who are dealing with the anxiety and the worry of our present financial state, who are questioning, is my job on the line? Who's questioning, where is this marriage going? That there'll be peace. And for those who are wondering, have I done, have I done enough to be in favor with God. There will be peace. And where do we find peace? Well, Haggai's going to tell us. So let's look at Haggai, verse 1. And it says this uh, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Let's, uh, let's just give a little background. Paul kind of gave you... Uh, 538 B.C., uh, the people of Israel were in the land of Babylon. And the king of Persia, Cyrus at the time, allowed the people to return to their land. To return, to establish their religious systems, to make peace in their land once again. Uh, in the process of that, uh, Cyrus was became ill, died, 
and Darius came to power. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. Uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel return the people. They lead the people. These first uh, remnant return to the land. And Haggai is the first prophet that we hear of in the post-exilic period. And the people, when they were in Babylon, they, they longed to return to the land. There are psalms that say, how can we worship the Lord in this foreign land? We must return. We must return to the land. And so that's where we pick up in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruin? Another post-exilic writing, Ezra, that you'll find, gives us a little bit more detail after the fact of what happened. The people return to the land and they begin building the temple. And amidst the afflictions and oppression and the numbness of life, they quit. See, they were at a point where they were zealous for the things of God. They longed for the things of God. But they began to have many challenges. And they say things like, well, you know, right now, economically, we're in a drought. And because we're in a drought, we, we really need to concentrate on other things. You know, right now, we really don't have a ton of people returning with us in this remnant so why don't we wait uh, till more of the remnant return from Babylon? Then we'll build the temple. Why don't we wait? Because the Samaritans are there. They, they are pressing in on us. They desire to take us out. And the plan was always to finish. The plan was always to finish. But the wood that they brought with them to build the temple went to paneling their houses. You see, the thing was that they were zealous for the things of God at one point but they became numb. They became callous. They became inoculated. And in that moment, what became ultimate was man-made security. And see, what we do is we begin to believe the lie. We begin to believe the lie that to be zealous for the things of God means that you begin to become out of tune with reality. What you need is you need religion but you just need enough of it to get you into hell, out of hell. You just need enough of it to get you into heaven. But when you start getting too much, when you get too zealous, what happens is you begin to have your life changed too much. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, in his wonderful book, Screwtape Letters, uh, says this. He says, talk to him about moderation in all things. See, uh, Screwtape is the affectionate uncle in the demonic realm teaching his nephew how to deceive, how to deceive those Christians. He says, talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can get him once to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And it's more amusing. 
what's Lewis saying? He's saying, if you find yourself reminiscing on your spiritual state, and you remember a time where God was just a little bit closer, where you just walked in rhythm with him just a little bit closer, and you find yourself apathetic to that, he's got you. And, and in that moment, we always long for peace, but we trade it in for something else to be ultimate. We, we end up living these paneled lives. And verse 5 is going to elaborate that a little bit more. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. He says, consider your ways. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, set your heart on your ways. Place your heart on your ways. He's saying this, in the craziness of your life, pull the car over. Pull the car over and examine the engine. And no pun intended, what is driving you? What is motivating you? What, at the end of the day, is ultimate? What is your peace? And Haggai's saying this, if you run to the pan of life, you will never be satisfied. And as his words, you will never have enough. Um, I don't know how many of you here are extroverted people. Do I have any extroverted people? Extroverted, introverted, introverted. Well, I am, I am extroverted and ADD at the same time. So that's just a train wreck. All right. Um, so I, I, I can't, I can't think when there's a lot of stuff going on. So what I'll do is I will go to Starbucks. I go to Starbucks, and in the process of going to Starbucks, I will study there, do my study there. And there's a Starbucks that I usually go to, and in the process of being there, uh, I'm ordering. And I have uh, an iPhone, basic, you know, the basic iPhone, which is, you know, I think I, at the time thought was a great thing. Um, you know, I'm looking busy. You know, I'm unemployed at the time, but you got to look busy, right? So, um, and I'm standing there waiting to order. And in the process of ordering, she says, oh, that's going to be 168 And I put my phone down and grab my wallet to pay. And as I put my phone down, she notices my phone. And here's this barista. She looks at my phone and says, you have the old one. <laughs> With that face. I mean, just absolute disgust. And in that moment, in my heart, I was like, she is right. I have the old one. And as I, as I pull back the layers on my corrupt soul and what's driving me in that moment was acceptance, was approval, was longing for everyone to think high of me. 
And God is saying, that's not going to give you peace. I'm the one who's going to give you everlasting peace. And all these things that we're running to, that we can make good or bad or indifferent, ultimate things, those become idols. All those things that we run to, and they leave us empty, those are idols. Tim Keller, a great Presbyterian minister, um, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. I couldn't highly recommend it enough to you. I don't even know if Paul has. But Keller says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. Uh, in 1984, a movie came out called Amadeus. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. Um, uh, it tells the story of Mozart and another guy, guy named Salieri. Uh, the historical accuracy of the movie might not be completely true, uh, as my wife would tell me, who was a college musician, uh, majored in music. But the story paints this guy named Salieri. Salieri is a devout religious man. And he longs to play the piano to glorify God. But what he can't get over is this punk, this maverick, this renegade named Mozart, who the second he touches the piano, makes gold. And it drives him. And he finds himself getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. That his ultimate desire was to be better than Mozart. And by the end of the movie, you see this man who trades in God for a paneled life. We're all running for peace. And if I asked you the question, and you fill in the blank, if God took away blank, life would not be worth living. If God took away this, life would not be worth living. But God has a place for us to find peace. Let's go to uh, chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. God has a place for us to find peace. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill the house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this is important. And in this place, I will give peace. In this place, I will give shalom. But you've got to be asking at this point, what? You're going to give us peace in what? A temple? We're going to find peace in a temple? 
Now, for us who are modern people, we aren't very accustomed to thinking about temples. If we do, we think it's a building with pillars and some kind of kooky stuff that goes on side, if we're honest. But to ancients, temple was extremely important. First, it was the place where, the, where it was housed the divine glory. It was the place of the Shekinah glory. Secondly, it was the place of intersection. It was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place where the eternal and the temporal met. It was the place where the supernatural and the natural met. The temple was important. And God's saying is trade in your paneled lives for peace in the temple. And he uses very dramatic language. Even second temple period, this language was called apocalyptic. It was massive. It was, as we use the word, earth-shattering news. That he said, I will shake the heavens and I will shake the earth. And here's what he's saying. There is coming a day when I will set all things right. There's coming a day when I will bring everlasting peace through the temple. But... Here's the problem. The second temple that ended up being built, we read in Ezra, that when the dimensions were set for the place, the people who were old enough, who saw the first temple, looked on it and began to weep because they knew that this temple was not what we longed for. They knew that, that this temple was not what was going to give everlasting peace. We were still maybe waiting on another temple. How, how could we find peace in this temple? And maybe the latter temple that Haggai talks about is different altogether. Maybe there's another temple where we find shalom. And so with that, let's turn to John 2. John 2. We're going to be in verse 18. Now, up to this point, uh, the Jews are celebrating Passover. So there is a massive influx of people to the temple. Uh, and during this time, uh, they are offering sacrifices. Uh, you know, things are taking place that normally do in the temple. And Jesus comes in and he grabs a whip and begins to drive people out of the temple. You don't do that, in case you're wondering. That's not allowed. You, you, you begin to get beat up for things like that. And so, in this process, Jesus says this, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The Jews were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe what he was saying. It was so outrageous. If someone had come to you with news like this, you would have been dumbfounded. He couldn't have meant that. He couldn't have meant what he said. Uh, at this time, Herod had extended the temple. He had made it more glamorous, more glorious, more majestic. Uh, 
from a physical standpoint. And this was probably all a political move. He wasn't liked by the Jews, so he needed to get in their favor. So he had built up this massive temple that even at this point when Jesus is speaking is still being extended. We're talking about the ultimate house renovation here. He is extending the temple. And Jesus declares two things. He says, I am the temple. I am the divine glory. I am the place where the divine glory is housed. And secondly, he says this, I am the latter temple. I am the latter temple. I am the place where God promised shalom. I am the place where God promised peace. See, every other temple up to this point was where you come and you offer sacrifice to find peace. But Jesus says this, I am the sacrifice. I am the one who brings you shalom. I am the final, the ultimate temple. So how do we know we have this peace? See, when we have and live paneled lives, we are after whatever we think will bring us peace. And if we're honest, we know that that is never enough. Whatever we're striving after, it is never enough. But Jesus says this, I am the sacrifice. I'm the one who's bridged the gap. I am the one who set all things right. And I have given you the Father's peace. I am the one who gives you the peace that God spoke of in Haggai. And where else do we see this peace? The New Testament says Jesus is the temple, but you know who else is the temple? You. Or as we affectionately say, y'all. The latter temple is Jesus, but when you are in him, you are the temple. 1 Peter 2 says this, you, or in Greek, y'all, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple was obviously made of stone being built up. And Peter is saying, you are those stones. And get this, you are showing the world shalom. You are promoting peace. And here's the thing. We do two things. We promote two things with our lives. One or the other. We are seeking peace through paneled lives. Or we are lives having peace through the gospel. We either are promoting to the world that we are living for everything else they are. Or we're promoting to them that our lives have peace by something that we could not do. Um, I have a confession to make, and I would like this edited out of the tape when we get done. Um, uh, when I am driving on the road, and um, particularly here in Wilmington, because you don't have freeways, um, and 
you know, someone's making a right-hand turn onto my lane, and they gun it at like 30 miles an hour to get in front of me, and then they drive two. You know, I, I, inside, I think I just cuss. Um, I get angry. But what's going on there? My control? My desire to be ahead and not be stuck? Having to learn patience? Basically, I'm learning how to have peace. What are you promoting? What are you living for? Who are you living for? Where are you finding your rest today? Who are you finding your rest in today? What are you looking for for peace? More importantly, who are you looking for? Or who are you looking at for peace? Haggai says this, consider your ways. I would say more importantly, consider him. Consider the one who said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Consider the one who houses the divine glory. Consider the one who has brought an eternal connection between heaven and earth, between the supernatural and the natural. Consider him the ultimate temple. This is the temple that God says. I will give you peace. Let's pray. Father, as I just confess, I mean, a preacher never is worthy of his message, and I am that. That life beckons me to trade in you for something else to be ultimate. Father, may we rest in your shalom. May we rest in your universal flourishing. May we rest in the peace that we find in the ultimate temple, in your wonderful Son. And in his beautiful name we pray.